Hey, good morning, everybody. Come on up. There's some up here. Yeah, very good. All right. I am so old. Thank you for asking. I'm so old that I actually taught in West Germany. Yes, kids. I know, I know. For 50 years, the country of Germany was actually divided. We had the communist east, and we had the, the free west, and I worked right up around here near Dusseldorf in the free west. Now, in that era, before the, the wall fell, the tensions between eastern and western Germans were just palpable. Here's what we would hear. On all the radios and talk shows in West Germany, we would hear uh, commentators talking about the Stasi, the East German secret police, who carried out thousands of clandestine missions, uh, very, some of them very, very nasty, against West Germans. And I will never forget listening to the radio and hearing Eric Honecker, the dictator of East Germany, celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Berlin Wall. He, he said, this wall, which was built to keep East Germans locked in, this wall protects us from the moral decay of the West. The tension was real. The distrust between East and West Germany seemed absolutely insurmountable. And then, miraculously, the wall came down. The East German state collapsed. Now, very soon after the East German state collapsed, I was uh, called to Germany. I got to go do some work there um, in the middle of the reunification. And, and in a series of meetings that I had with Eastern and Western Germans, I observed real teamwork, real harmony. The, the key moment for me happened during a camp week. We were having a, a camp week, and the kids were all mixed. They were about half of them from East Germany, half from West Germany. And I asked them, how could it be that they were having such a great week of camp? Here's how I put it. I said, how can you kids work and play together so well when you have been programmed to fight each other and fear each other? How can this be? And one little girl said, wir alle Deutsche sind. We are all Germans. Wir alle Deutsche sind thought about that trip to Germany as I worked on today's message. In our uh, apologetics series today, we're dealing with the modern atheist charge that Christianity denigrates women. And the situation, as I looked at it, feels an awful lot like the old divided Germany. Males and females are taught from the cradle to fight and fear each other. Our culture is bombarded with messages that pit women against men. But the scriptural truth is we are all human. As my German friend would surely put it, wir sind alle Menschen. Say it with me. Everybody, say wir. wir. Say sind. sind. Say alle. alle. Menschen. Menschen. All together. Wir sind alle Menschen. Again. Wir sind alle Menschen. Amen. We are all human. That is the scriptural truth. Now, as we summarize in your notes, um, if you're online, you should have a link there. By the way, we're so thrilled to be able to study with you. Welcome. Uh, you should have a link there. You guys have a bulletin. Open it up, and you'll see in your notes, women and men are made to enjoy equality and unity. Wir sind alle Menschen. This equal unity is, get this, this is amazing. It is grounded in the Trinity. You understand that? It's not anything about human beings that grants unity. It is something about God. God. Open your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. First book of your Bible, second chapter, uh, 24th verse. Just go to verse 24 of Genesis 2. This is why a man leaves his mother, his father and mother, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Stop right there. Let's add this statement. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I'd like you to look up here at the slide and notice they each use the same word for one. 
they each use this Hebrew word, aichod, aichod. Here's why that's important. It's a really weird construction in Hebrew. That's not the normal term you would use for one there. The normal Hebrew word for one is aleph, the a. Uh, it, aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's just like our A, and it indicates one thing, just like we would say a Bible. How many is that? One. A cup. How many is that? One, right? But, but Ihod is something totally different. Ihod is a coming together of, of multiple diverse components. It, it, is a, it is a unity of different parts. Ihod is less like one cup and more like uh, the United States, uh, your motto for your country, e pluribus unum, uh, one out of many. This gives me chills. Do you see what God is saying here? Just as God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, so a married couple is one. They, they are bonded in a marital trinity of man, woman, and God who binds them together. I think Pastor Zach Payne is correct in his summary. He says this, God's unity is described as Ichod, and the concept of unity in marriage is described as Ichod. Thus, one original intent of marriage is to teach us something about God. Now, we're not here to talk about marriage today so much as we are males and females. And the point is that, that just like the triune God, male and female are made to enjoy equality and unity in the Lord. This is grounded in the very triunity of God. And it's established at creation. Slide up in your text to uh, verse 18. You're still in Genesis 2. Go up to verse 18 of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man whom he created first to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now, the Hebrew here is a real jawcracker. Um, helper corresponding is how we translate the words ezer kenegedo. Uh, ezer means an indispensable companion. Um, ezer is a, listen, ezer is a partner, not a subordinate. God, God uses the term ezer for himself when he's talking about his relationship to us elsewhere in the Old Testament. So just tell me, when God calls himself our ezer, is he saying he's subordinate to us? No, please say no, no, right? God's reminding people that he is the indispensable companion. Azir is a helper or a partner who comes alongside to do a task that cannot be done alone. Now, um, Kenegadau adds to the understanding. Here's what Kenegadau is. It's the opposite piece that keeps balance, okay? So, so the, the man and the woman are in perfect balance, in creation, men and women are made to be in perfect balance with each other. Now, here's what's most important, especially for marriage. The root word of kenegadau, neghed, the root word implies direction. Okay? Direction. So, this isn't just the other half. This is the other half that makes the whole go in the right direction. I have many friends who are pilots. On a commercial aircraft these days, how many seats are up in the front of the, at the nose of the jet? How many? Mm-hmm. Two. Not counting the jump seats behind that. I know you design aircraft. Just you stay out of this. All right. Two. <laughs> there's a left seat for the captain and there's a right seat for the first officer, right? Do you know? I Surely you do. The first officer flies the aircraft as much as the captain, sometimes more. Um, they are considered one. There's a reason that those seats are exactly the same. They are considered one unit safely flying the plane together. Now, they do have different roles. The captain has a role that he cannot delegate. By law, he cannot delegate. The captain is always ultimately accountable for that aircraft. Even when the FO is flying, the captain is responsible for the aircraft. 
and the way it works in our modern, it used to be a little different. 40 years ago, we would have three people in the cockpit. Now there's just two. So the first officer is responsible for navigation. The, the first officer is almost always uh, tied into the company's internal ops communication system. So they, they know things that are coming up about gates and things that are happening with the, the plane, things about weather. Um, they, they are watching all of the multiple redundant navigation systems on board. And, and that, is a, that is a responsible role for the FO. I want to show you a common flight example. This is one they show in flight school. Um, <clears throat> so you've got a plane. Uh, let's just make a little bit older style plane that has gyroscopic instruments, okay, so not GPS. The captain, uh, his job is to keep this plane on its track with the flight path that they have, they have laid with the FAA. Okay, so here's his track, and that is his job. But the, the first officer who's in his right seat, the first officer, uh, their job is to notice all the things that are going on with, so the gyroscope's telling the captain they're on track, but the first officer notices the wind, which is always changing for pilots, right? The wind is actually blowing the craft to where their heading is off. Their heading is off. I say that just to bring up these questions for you. Tell me, what good is a first officer who won't share that information with the captain? We're off course. What, what good is a captain who won't listen to his first officer? They're both fools, Right? They are, not going, they are not going to end up in their intended destination, right? In a similar way, God established at creation that men and women are equals with slightly different roles. More on that in a moment. Azer Kanegadau, Captain Adam, has a first officer who gives direction and compliments the flight crew that Adam is supposed to serve and lead. In summary, males and females are each completely human and they are made to be better together. Which brings us to one of the oddest phenomena of the 21st century. Adults today actually act like preteen children in this area. It, it, and it's increasing. Let me take you back to when you were a kid at camp, okay? When you were a little kid at camp, little kid camp, boys and girls are always competing against each other, right? Girls are made of greasy guy and go for it. Right? You, you, you sing songs like that. That was our favorite. Um... um the, uh, the, the competitions, the, the things, and it was all fine because that's part of how you learn about the other half of humanity. It's part of how you, you develop relationships and peers. It's okay when you're a child, but adults are supposed to be beyond that. And yet what I hear in our culture and in our churches, I got to go back to my camp directing days, it sounds an awful lot like the whiny little boys that would come up after every competition and say, you're giving more points to the girls. You're cheating for the girls. Ah! You're supposed to be an adult. This is insane. Even Christians keep getting caught up in this whining and divisiveness between men and women. And nowhere is that struggle more powerful than when we're discussing roles. That's where Christians struggle the most with our equality and our unity in God. The rubber meets the road at the point of roles. Let me tell you a story. A young preacher friend of mine was uh, browsing through the books in my library when he spied this book, Elizabeth Elliot's Let Me Be a Woman. And, um, and he took it off the shelf, and he was holding it down to his side like this. And out of the corner of my eye, we're talking about other things, I saw him, he got over near the trash can, and he was going to throw it away. And so I walked over, and I said, what, what are you doing? He said, um, <clears throat> I just saw this book. And it, I said, you were going to throw away my book. He said, okay, look, this garbage is full of rolls. It's got rolls all through it. It needs to be thrown away. I said, well, give me the book and step away. All right. 
told you that to tell you this. A couple years later, Jana and I are over at this pastor's house with him and his lovely wife to celebrate their new baby. And we're all talking over tea and rejoicing and cooing over the new baby. When the wife looks up and she says, oh, hey, hon, when I was in the kitchen, I noticed that the garbage was full. And he said, oh, got it. And he dutifully hopped up and he went to the kitchen to take out the trash, which is very nice. But while he was out, I asked the wife, I said, hey, does, does he always take out the trash? And she said this. This was so fascinating. She, she kind of dropped her head and she said, well, well, almost always. Before we were married, we tried to say that we would each do everything. You know, no roles. And then her voice, she, she was ashamed. She got ashamed and said, but it's impossible to pull off. I mean, especially after I got pregnant, some organization became necessary. This poor girl was ashamed because she saw her family as giving into something outdated or wrong. In reality, they were just learning about the beauty of harmonious roles in the home. Please turn to the New Testament in your Bible. Leave Genesis, go to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. Uh, the two Corinthian letters, then Galatians, then Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, the great statement about roles in, in marriage in the New Testament. Let's go to verse 22. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also are wives to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. And here he quotes Genesis 2 that we read. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, let each one of you, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Do you see both of the beautiful Old Testament points here? Look, look, look. Look at your text. This is a picture of the Trinity, right? You've got woman, God, and man bonded together. It, it, it makes what Ecclesiastes would call a cord of three strands, right? And the creation accounts here as well. Look, the husband is the captain. He's to be the servant leader. The wife is the first officer. She should navigate without trying to take over the left seat. And Paul shows how Jesus is the ultimate example of each of those roles. Husbands, love your wives just as Jesus loved the church. Sounds like a pretty good gig. Jesus is the head, he's the, uh, the leader, servant leader, whatever that part means. It, it sounds like a really nice deal, right? Until you realize the cost. Being the captain means you die for the other. You die. The woman's role is just as impossible. She has to sit in the right seat, right? While her peer to whom she's wed, this idiot to whom she's married, gets the left one. He, if they ever disagree about direction, he's the captain. He has the final say. But she can't just sulk in silence about that because she's violating God's law. She doesn't share her insights. These roles are hard. But Jesus shows us how to live them out perfectly. That's why Ephesians 5 is not just talking about men and women. Do you see how it keeps talking about Christ through the whole passage? Jesus submits to the Father who is his equal. Jesus leads humanity by dying for us. And yet I have men that will say to me, well, Pastor, you don't know my house. I mean, I... 
you don't know how impossible it is to serve and lead that woman, right? It may be hard, but Jesus did it, and he calls you to do the same. You die and live for that person. And women will say to me, you don't understand. It is so hard to just navigate and let that jerk lead, all right? I'm sure it's hard, but Jesus does it. He is equal with the Father, and yet he submits to him, and he calls for you to do the same. Now, I know this brings up a really frustrating question in your mind as I say that. In, in, your, um, in your German air traffic controller voice, you're saying, how can we do these hard things? How, if, how can we do this? Thank you for asking, German air traffic controller. The, the answer is by Jesus' power. A little bit further on in Ephesians, God has Paul write this. Read it with me, Ephesians 6.10, all together. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. You and I are not capable, and none of us is capable of healthy navigation or of service leadership. We're not, but Jesus is, and His vast strength empowers those who trust Him. All God's people said? Now, understandably, there's a lot of resistance to this idea of biblical roles in the home. I think that one of the best summaries I ever read was offered by the British apologist uh, that we've been reading throughout this series, Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote an article called Confessions of a Reluctant Complementarian. Here's what she said. I was an undergraduate at Cambridge when I first encountered Ephesians 5.22. By the way, I don't know, I don't remember, but I wonder if I, she was in that group that I taught when I was at Cambridge when she was an undergrad. I wonder if I taught on that passage. Anyway, it's just intriguing. She said, I'd come from an academically driven, equality-oriented, single-sex high school. I was now studying in a majority male college, and I was repulsed. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You've got to be kidding me. I felt this verse was harmful to my witness. I was offering my friends a radical narrative of power inversion in which the creator God laid down his life, in which poor outclassed the rich, in which outcasts became family. The gospel was a consuming fire of love across difference to burn up racial injustice and socioeconomic exploitation. And here was this horrifying verse promoting the subjugation of women. Jesus had elevated women to an equal status with men. Paul, it seemed, had pushed them back down. Okay, now, let me tell you, many of us can relate. What, what we just read could have come straight from the mouth of my pastor friend who tried to throw away my, my Elizabeth Elliot book, right? I've heard that speech many times. But here's what McLaughlin does. She keeps thinking. She kept on digging in the text. And I quoted some of her conclusions on the right side of your notes. Look there. She says, I tried really hard to explain Ephesians 5.22 away. I tried arguing that in the Greek, the word translated submit only appears in the previous verse. Submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the rest of the passage must be applying submission as much to husbands as to wives. But that didn't stick. The, the roles for husbands and wives described in the following verses simply seem to be different. And this command to submit wasn't only in Ephesians 5. It's also in Colossians 3.18 and 1 Peter 3.1. It seemed like I was cornered. Then, Rebecca writes, I turned my attention to the command to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross, by giving himself naked and bleeding to suffer for her, by putting her needs above his own, by giving everything for her. I asked myself, how would I feel if this were the command to wives? Wives, love your husbands to the point of death, putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. She closes with this. If the gospel is true, none of us come to the table with rights. The only way is flat on your face. 
If I want to hold on to my fundamental right of self-determination, I must reject the message of Jesus because he calls me to submit completely to him, to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. Close quote. Men and women are equal before God. Jesus empowers us to live that out and, and live together even on this fallen world. He does so, so using roles, roles in the home and roles in the churches. Now, the New Testament, this is wild, New Testament only addresses three church roles. Out of all of the thousands of topics that could have been covered, only three have specific biblical guidance. First uh, Timothy 2 contains one. It's about preaching. First uh, Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The context there is not all of life. It's not all the church. It's only one little tiny thing. The context is the assembly, the weekly gathering of the church. So the weekly gathering of the church is to have male preaching. Um, Titus 2 also does second role also discusses teaching Titus chapter 2 they uh, in the context is more mature women are to teach what is good so they may encourage the young women younger women are to be discipled only by more advanced females the third male female role in the church concerns elders God calls for them to be male first Timothy 3 an overseer therefore must be above reproach the husband of one wife and by the way I just have so much trouble with that translation I understand the geniuses who do the translation, it's, it's very hard to put into English, but mias gunaikas andras, the, the Greek words we translate that, they, have, they don't have anything to do with marriage. It means a one-woman kind of man. That is a much higher bar than having been married one time. It means you don't have roving eyes. You are a one-woman kind of man, okay? So, that's it. That's it. God gives absolutely no role direction regarding who teaches a life group. Absolutely nothing regarding who can love on children or who leads worship or anything else. Just those three things. But here's what's really interesting. Since the 1960s, these two male roles are under continuous ridicule, right? But this one, the female one, that's still considered wise. Why? Why don't you ever hear any pastor get up and say, you know, a real church would have older men personally disciple our younger women. Why didn't anybody say that? They're tearing apart the other two. Why not tear apart that one? Because our culture still agrees with that one. And, and my point is people's arguments against these roles prove that they are sadly driven by culture. They're not driven by the Bible. Now, of course, I know, now you're thinking in your, uh, in your Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin accent, um, you're thinking, so the, the big idea I grasp, all are human before God. I understand the roles in home and in the church, but why is there so much male-female conflict among Christians? Great question, Rebecca. Thanks for asking. I see five big problems that promote this conflict. We list them in your notes. First, many ignore Jesus' complete acceptance of females. You know, there are a lot of cultures worldwide where people look at the Scripture through a patriarchal filter. And that causes the reader to miss the equality of male and female in God's eyes. For example, look at uh, John chapter 4. Jesus left Judea, went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to the well to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. I know, it was shocking. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. 
There are three keys to understanding this exchange. First, the story is set on ground held by Isaac, uh, uh, Jacob. Israel is his other name. Here's why this is so important. This literally grounds the whole story in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and his son Jacob. This is really important because the covenant that's given to Abraham and is repeated to Jacob is a covenant of grace. Do you know what God said? He said to Abraham that he was going to use him and his offspring to bless all of the world. Everyone who ever trusted Yahweh would be accepted into the covenant of grace. That's the very foundation of the story. The setting is important. Secondly, this Samaritan is offered free eternal life. Um, Living water is water that moves under its own power. Nobody's controlling it or turning it on, it moves under its own power. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus shows us again and again that he likes using living water as a metaphor for eternal life. So this this is complete eternal salvation being offered. And thirdly, it's being offered to a really unhealthy person. The context reveals, uh, when you read the whole passage, this woman has played fast and loose with commitment. That's probably why she's at the well at noon when all the other women are, are inside resting, because she is an immoral person. And yet, she is still offered full eternal life in Jesus. Isn't that great? Abraham's covenant of salvation by God's grace through faith is fulfilled in Jesus. It is offered to female as well as male, even this woman who is unsavory in her living. Now, working with his friend the Apostle Paul, Luke develops the same theme. I don't have time to go through it today, but I really encourage you to read Luke on your own and look at all the examples repeatedly in Luke of the female focus of Jesus Christ. Peter absorbed this ethic. Look at his statement. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in this same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner. He's talking about physically. Showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Males and females are fully equal heirs of life. Co-heirs, he calls them. But again, this is so sad, but many Christians through time and space have ignored this. And Peter shows just how deeply that displeases God. Look what he says. You better treat your wife as a co-heir or your conversations with God will be hindered. The Babylon Bee recently addressed this really sharp satire. Uh, The Babylon Bee said this. Sometimes you men get into arguments with your wife. (laughs) Ha ha, noob. To help you navigate these difficult talks, be sure to follow these expert tips from the marriage experts at the B. Tip number one, use cold, hard reason, meticulously explained and re-explained. Using logic and reason in an argument with your wife will help her immediately understand how ridiculous she's being. Problem solved. (laughs) Number two, ask her if she's on her period. (laughs) Then just... Then just tell her lovingly, you know this is all just because of her lady hormones and you won't hold it against her. I got to tell you this. We had a neighbor one time. We had a neighbor, really lovely people we got to know well. But they, um, one afternoon, I'm out in the backyard with the kids. We're playing games in the backyard. And through their brick wall kitchen, across their yard, across the driveways, And across, over our fence and across our backyard, this is what I heard. And I'm just going to give it to you as loudly as I heard it. PMS! PMS! I'll show you PMS! (laughs) And the kid's like, Daddy? And I said, we need to pray. (laughs) And we did. We, we, We prayed for her and for him. And a little bit later, I took cookies over to make sure everybody, they were all fine. They were okay. All right. Third tip from the B. Helpfully suggest she calm down. Sometimes wives forget to calm down. (laughs) One helpful reminder and all tempers will dissipate. You're a genius. 
remind her that the thing she just said sounds like something her mother would say. <laughs> One of the most dehumanizing things that we do to people. Call you someone else. That's just awful. Also remind her, your mother never talks to you like this. And then their last tip, bring in all the kids and ask them to vote on who's right. <laughs> then you'll figure out which kids are on your side and which ones you need to keep an eye on. Okay. That's satire. That is satire. But the point that Seth Dillon's making in that comedy is right on. If you're less understanding, if you talk down to your co-heir of grace, you will regret it. Second big cause of male-female conflict among Christians, many misapprehend the historical context of the Bible passages. Um, the people who try to destroy the roles in the home and the church, they're especially bad about this. Here's what they do. They make up a trajectory model that supposedly represents the arc of history or the right side of history, and then they base all their practices on that model instead of on the Bible. But outside of Karl Marx's delusions, there is no trajectory of history. There's only correct understanding, which we may or may not have, of, of historical context, and there's incorrect understanding. For example, uh, were you ever told, raise your hand if you were ever told that Napoleon was really short. Napoleon Bonaparte was really short. Okay, that's actually a lie. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was 5'6", almost 5'7", and when he was born almost 250 years ago, that was, that was above average height. He wasn't short at all. That's just a lie. Were you, were you told that, that Vincent Van Gogh uh, cut off his, his right ear and sent it to, you, you were told that, right? That's just not true. He cut off the very tip of his ear lobe, that was all, which is gross enough, but it's not like he cut off his entire ear, right? The, I, the point is that when you're concerned more with a narrative than with truth, myths like that get absorbed as facts. And, and this is what often happens with our brethren who misapprehend the historical context of the scriptures. Frankly, and, and I, I'm just going to be really frank here, uh, their, their history is full of cherry-picked nonsense. For example, that, that pastor, my friend who, who tried to steal my book and made his wife feel guilty when he took out the garbage, these are two things that he has preached, uh, he has said, and he and I have talked about, he has said to me. Uh, females, he says, were no better than slaves in the Roman world. In fact, many male slaves were better off. Here's another one. A Jewish man got up every day and said, thank God I'm not a Gentile and thank God I'm not a woman. Folks, those aren't true. They're just not true. A, a woman in the Roman Empire had, had rights that, quite frankly, the vast majority of human history never saw. She could divorce on demand, didn't need any reason. She could abort at will. A woman could inherit property. She could own a business. When she did divorce, she received her dowry back. In, in most cases, when she divorced, the judge gave her a pension for life, right? That Jewish man quote, thank God I'm not a Gentile, not a woman, that, that appears absolutely nowhere in any record until the late Middle Ages. And then there's no sense that that was widespread. It's just what one guy said. And there's absolutely no support that that was being spoken or thought of in the first century as the context when the Scriptures put together. It's terrible history to read myths back into a scriptural context. When, when you do so, you just you divide the church and you make everyone hypersensitive. Third problem, many confuse biblical roles with cultural ones. This, this is very widespread. It's somewhat understandable. We all find it hard to step out of our own cultural perspective, right? So, so you regularly see people confuse biblical roles with the ones their culture holds as normative. And, and, and thus we remain trapped in this cardboard box of culture instead of stepping out to enjoy biblical freedom. For example, 
When I have taught in certain parts of the Middle East or certain parts of Latin America, the idea that men, that men should listen to their wives and they should listen to the navigation of the wife, when I teach that, that gets big pushback. You ready for this? From the women. That's, that's who's usually most unhappy about it. But while I'm trying to be sensitive, I have to say that that culture, with all of the good and bad of that culture, it does not override Scripture. And when I have been invited to speak in parts of Eastern Europe, the thought that men must sacrifice for their wives, that gets a negative reaction, big time, from the men. Now, aren't you glad we're not like that? We enlightened American Christians, we never confuse Scripture with our culture, right? All right. I'm just going to throw four things at you. These are, these are somewhat shocking to many people. Not to you. Not to you wonderful biblical Christians, but other people that you know, other Christians. Maybe these can be of use. Let me throw some truth at you. A man is not emasculated if his wife works outside the home and he does other productive things like stay home with the kids. That's, that's no problem scripturally. Nowhere. A woman is not lesser Despite what your country has been bombarding you with in America for the last 45 years, a woman is not lesser if she chooses to stay home and directly run that enterprise instead of taking a job outside the home. You ready for this one? A man does not have any scriptural right to ever rape his wife. Ever. A woman does not have any biblical right to command her husband to go sleep on the couch. Unless she's going to the couch, and then she can invite him there, I guess. That'd be fine. We could go on, but you get the idea. These are cultural ideas. I, I hear them all the time. They get confused for Scripture. And this is the problem with so many even really nice Christian books on marriage, right? Uh, there'll be videos or, or series or books on marriage, and, and there's a lot of good in them. But here's what so many of them do. They add all these categories that the Bible doesn't, and then they treat those categories as holy writ. The, these added roles and ideas they add, those can either be very conservative or very liberal, but they aren't God's Word, as usual, Rebecca McLaughlin summarizes really well. She says, Ephesians 5 grounds our roles in marriage not on gendered psychology, but on Christ-centered theology. All God's people said, why, why are there so many male-female conflicts among Christians? Three biggest problems. Ignoring Jesus' complete acceptance of females, confusing, uh, misconstruing the historical context of Bible passages, confusing the very few biblical roles with the very many ever-changing cultural ones. And there are two more problems I should point out. Now, these, these are more rare, but I think they're even more serious. Possibly the most heinous is how some people will, will misuse Scripture to cover abuse. Over the last decades, there are a number of groups, including churches, that have been exposed uh, for predatory sexual practices. That's, that's evil. It's, it's a horrible part of life on a fallen planet. But what has made some of the church stories so horrendous is that the predators, instead of being exposed, have, have actually tried to hide behind Scripture. And other Christians have helped them. Christian females have even been told that they should not report abuse. The people who say that try to support that foolishness by ripping these Bible passages out of context. It didn't work. One night, I was the pastor on call here, and I was awakened by my phone. It was very late, actually very early in the morning, and I answered the phone, and it was a, an upset, panicked lady in our church 
who was screaming to me that her husband was beating her. And I hung up the phone, and I called 911 immediately and gave him the address. And then I threw some clothes on. I got a couple other leaders from our church, and we ran over to that place. And uh, when we got there, the police were there standing with the bleeding wife, and the husband was furious, and he looked at me, and he threatened me, and he said, you have ruined my reputation for no reason. I'm going to sue the church. And I just stood there quietly with the police, uh, with the bleeding wife, and they carted him away. Two days later, a couple of us went and visited him in jail. And we told him this, and I'll say the same thing to any of you if this ever comes up. The Bible says to obey the laws of our country, and this is the law. We love you. We love you unconditionally, and that love includes holding you to what is right. The reality is the Bible calls abuse what it is. It is sin. Those who practice abuse must be loved enough to be told the truth and to be held accountable. All vi- Listen, all victims, female, male, I've had almost as many calls for males, in abuse. Females, males, people who are falsely accused. That's a horrible kind of victimization. The people who are abused, every one of them must be loved and cared for in Christ. Amen? Don't ever let anyone accuse you of Christianity being abuse-friendly. It's simply not true. Fifth problem is that some people use abuse as an excuse to warp Scripture. Let me me show you the logic here. It's kind of weird, but here's, here's how this This works. Because, these people reason, some males have abused females, therefore, Scripture must be corrected. It it must be slanted so that we can correct the past problems. You've got to slant Scripture. And and then what that does, the list is ever-changing, but today, uh, the slanting of Scripture is used to show that roles have got to be removed from the Bible, that the victim must always be believed as long as she's female, that men are not to be trusted, and that females are always right. I like the time to explain this in depth. Let me just say that kind of thinking is lazy and it's dangerous. The hubris behind it is appalling. May God open our eyes to our self-righteous nonsense anytime we think we need to fix his words. Now, of course, the, if you know anybody who, who does this, the propagators rarely even try to use Scripture because what matters to them is, is human experience, not God's Word. And even when they do sprinkle some Bible verses on top, it, it produces a pablum that's only fit for a Twitter feed. I mean, any longer discussion would expose the nonsense. All right? So, so look at these problems. Look at these problems. Um, why is there so much male-female conflict even among Christians? Ignoring Jesus' complete acceptance of females, misconstruing the historical context, confusing the very few biblical roles with the very many ever-changing cultural ones, misusing Scripture to cover abuse, and using abuse as an excuse to warp Scripture. Wow! What a mess! What can we do? What can we possibly do about this? Remember who we are. Say it with me again. Wir sind alle Menschen. Together. Wir sind alle Menschen. Again. Wir sind alle Menschen. We are all humans. And if we trust in Jesus, we have unity and equality in Christ. So when somebody tries to draw you, and usually they do this in public, they try to draw you in an argument about how Christian men, don't you, Christian men are oppressive. Or, or Christian women should not be teaching Bible studies. You just look them in the eye and you say, wir sind alle Menschen, right? Just, just say this, these are my brothers and sisters. I don't talk about my family in front of other people. Our equality and our unity is grounded in the very trinity of God. We, we must not speak against that. 
If I have a problem with my brother or sister, I need to talk it out like I did many times over the years with my brother who tried to throw away my book. We have had great, long, respectful conversations, and we love each other. And we do not speak publicly against each other. What can we do about this misunderstanding of men and women? Remember who we are. Secondly, do not, do not twist Scripture. Don't do this. Don't do it. Not even to fit your desired narrative. Not even to correct past wrongs. Not, not to fit your idea of progress. Not to support your favorite cultural roles. Be humble before God's Word. All God's people said. Third thing we can do. Fulfill our various roles with joy. We had another neighbor... Uh, a different neighbor on the other side who, who very kindly called Jana and I old-fashioned. She would say it in a fairly condescending way. She would say, you guys, you guys are so old-fashioned. It's just so nice. You're just so cute and old-fashioned. And, and, and we would talk to her about the Lord, her husband, and one of the kids actually came to faith in Christ uh, fairly early on in our relationship. She was not interested because she had heard that Christianity denigrates women, and she didn't want any part of that. But she watched my wife day after day. And day after day, she watched me. And she was, she was intrigued by who we were. So much so that after like a year and a half of knowing her, she came to us and she said this, is there any way I could pay you guys to watch my kids? Your influence would be the best, so much better than, than daycare. Isn't that sweet? We were honored. We declined. We had enough problems with our own kids. Um, <laughs> the, the point is that when we live with joy, people begin to notice. And noticing, they're drawn past all those lies. They really investigate who Jesus is and what's really going on with his people. What can we do against this weight of misrepresentation and bad blood between men and women? Remember who we are. Do not slant the scripture and fulfill your role with joy. We fulfill our roles with joy. And those are certainly worthy of prayer. Let's pray. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters. I am not capable, nor are any of us, of fulfilling our roles. We don't, we don't have what it takes to be real servant leaders. We don't have what it takes to be real helper lovers. We, we don't have what it takes to be one completely equal, unified, bonded, but you do. Jesus, in you, you embodied all of this, and you promised to empower us. And we ask you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.